So we're looking at a book. The book's called Ecclesiastes. And uh, I'm really excited about looking at this book over these next few weeks. Um, I think in lots of ways, this book probably speaks in a way to our culture, to our generation, in a most remarkable, amazing way. I think hopefully as we unfold it over these next few weeks, that'll speak to you as well. I'll I'll let you uh, get an idea of how we're going to work through this, this book we've got this afternoon, which really is just an introduction. Uh, it's a kind of orientating ourselves, creating a, a few keys for us uh, to unlock the, the ideas that Ecclesiastes opens up. Then we're going to take um, the next sections of the book in eight big chunks. Uh, there'll be four kind of themes, and we'll look at each theme over two weeks. And then we're going to conclude with, uh, again, we're going to have one of our evenings where you're going to be able to send some questions in as we go through a summary of the book, Uh, and hope that that was helpful before Christmas when we did that for the God question. We're going to look to repeat it at the end of this series. So we've got 10 weeks uh, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's a book which was written maybe just over 2,000 years ago, maybe 3,000 years ago. Some people would say that it was written by uh, Solomon. Some others would say it was drawing on his ideas. Um, I I really don't think, to be perfectly honest, that the who actually wrote the book of Ecclesiastes matters a single jot. I think what's amazing is the ideas that have been captured here have been preserved by God and by the power of His Holy Spirit in His living Word. I am utterly convinced that they capture the hearts, the thoughts, the mind, the experience of this King Solomon who was known to be wise. Uh, And I guess for us it speaks in a powerful way about living our lives in a wise way. That's what it's about. It's speaking as well in a language which is absolutely spot on for our age. However, it's had an interesting and checkered past as the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not always been valued quite the way we value it today. Um, but you might have heard of the, one of the great kind of moments in the history of the church uh, was the Reformation. And Martin Luther started the Reformation, nailed 95 theses onto a door at uh, Wittenberg, and that kind of just exploded into a massive reorientation and thinking about what it means to be a believer in God, a believer in Jesus, and what does it mean for us to believe that in and of ourselves as people. However, what he said about Ecclesiastes, he said this, Ecclesiastes ought to have been more complete. There's too much incoherent matter in it. Solomon did not, therefore, write this book. (laughs) That's fascinating, isn't it? Here's Martin Luther. Some people would really look at this guy as, you know, great champion of the past. And he's saying that if it was written by somebody as wise as Solomon, he, he would have made it really kind of, he'd rounded it off. He'd have concluded it. He'd have spoken in a way which would have been, you know, all-encompassing, incredible wisdom. One of the things that this book does as we work through it, and one of the things that we'll experience, is it leaves us hanging on lots of occasions. It leaves us questioning. Martin Luther didn't think that was a very good thing, and he said, because of that, it wasn't written by Solomon. I'm kind of really not quite sure whether we should even include it in this book of the Bible. 
And I look at that and I think, here we are, 21st century, and this book speaks in our generation in an incredible way. Isn't God amazing? Isn't He breathtaking? In the way there might be moments in history when certain parts of His Word might not speak to certain generations with quite the clarity, but as we move on, it's other parts of the Bible re-emerge. God is this incredible speaking, communicating God who has preserved this Word down through the centuries, and it speaks in an amazing way to us today. Luther's Ecclesiastes didn't think it spoke much into his Renaissance world. But the, I'm going to use a kind of technical word that's used in the commentaries here. The Colette, which is the teacher, it was a nickname for Solomon, which is an indication maybe of the heritage. This book, if you're into all this kind of stuff, this teacher could have sat down really comfortably with some of the existentialist philosophers they could have had a great conversation. They could have talked for hours. Camus, Sartre, all of these great thinkers, Kierkegaard, these great minds, existential minds of the 19th and 20th century. The, the teacher of the book of Ecclesiastes would have looked really at home, sitting down with those guys, thinking about life. I find that one of, you know, as I've talked, I'm not, I, I've got goosebumps <laughs> just reflecting on that thought that this speaking God would have sat down in the academic institutes of the 19th and 20th, 21st century and would have felt absolutely comfortable debating what life is all about. That's amazing, isn't it? And some of you might be thinking, oh man. Paul's off on one. <laughs> We're going to get lost over the next eight weeks, and he's going to lose himself as well because he's really not that bright. The other side of it is, talking about life is a reality as well wherever we are. I don't think we need to be in the kind of academic ivory towers to be thinking about life in that way. We all do it. Us common people do it. The common people of that incredibly powerfully speaking voice, the poet of the 90s, uh, Jarvis Cocker and the band Pulp. He spoke in a powerful way about what life was all about. The words of common people that says this, it might not be the intellectual philosophical content of the kind of academic worlds, but he said this, because when you're laid in bed at night watching roaches climb the wall, if, you're call, if you call your daddy, he could stop it all. You'll never live like common people. You'll never do what common people do. You'll never fail like common people. You'll never watch your life slide out of view. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? See, you don't have to be kind of highfalutin 
to be thinking about what life is all about. It's reflected in the songs that we sing. It's reflected in the popular material that we read. There are so many people saying, my life is just slipping by, and it's, a, it's this meaningless something which is going on around me. I'm just existing. Now, here's the question. Who are we? How do I relate to that life which is slipping by? And what does God have to say to us about it? Because our experience, our life, and how the Bible speaks about the life that we are living and the life that we could live is an essential question that we need to face up to. How do you and how do I live our lives? If, um, if you've asked that question, you might have been prompted to ask that question, driving along on the, behind a, a Land Rover Discovery, pretty much most Land Rover Discoveries, covered in mud with a winch on the front and fog lights and all of that kind of thing. It, and some of you are thinking, I don't know what Land Rover Discovery is. It's one of those that goes off-road. But so many of them got a sticker in the back window. And the sticker in the back window says this, One life, live it. I think when I stop and I pause, I think that phrase could be emblazoned over a whole load of our questions about life. I have got one life, I've got to live it. Now, the Land Rover kind of philosophy is the way to really live life is to work through the week so that you can get the weekends where you can go mud plugging, tipping your Land Rover upside down, getting, getting it winched out of bogs, all of that kind of thing. But here's the thing. How do you, how do I live our lives? I have one life, live it. I don't think we need to be Sartre's and Kierkegaard's to ask that question. We can be Jarvis Cocker's to ask that question as well. Here's the next question that I want to ask us. Which life is the life that you live? I don't think that question has had to be asked quite as much as we ask the question today. What is your life? What is your life? The life that I see or the life that you know you live? What do I see of your life? Well, our I'm going to talk about social media, and I love social media. I think it's got amazing potential. The opportunity of brilliant photography on Instagram, the ability of various social media platforms to communicate with people across the world, you know, keeping people connected. But there is another perspective, isn't there? Which is it's a, found, it's a platform for me to create a life so that everybody else will look on and say, wow, that's a life I'd love to live. They're really living it. It's that kind of portrayal of my life. Uh, and some of you will say, I know he's beaten up on social media again, but it's true, isn't it? It is true. So many people want to live their life on social media in such a way as to say, this is the life that I know I want to be living, and the little moments that I can persuade you that that's the life I'm living, I just want to take every opportunity. Who are we trying to persuade? I think it's an interesting question, isn't it? Who are we trying to persuade? Because I think 
in reality, the lives that we live are like layers. We get deeper and we get deeper and we get deeper. There's the life that we portray out there, however we portray it. Then there's the life that we portray face to face. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. How are you? And I'm not great. There's another life going on. And then there's the life that we have at three o'clock in the morning when the whole of the world is quiet and we're by ourselves in our thoughts and we can't sleep and we're asking the questions that are asked in the book of Ecclesiastes. What is life all about? What is my life all about? It's the life that we're almost frightened to expose even to ourselves. Isn't life an amazing thing? Isn't life actually a far more complex thing? What, what, what are we doing there? We're, we're experiencing an angst. We're asking questions. Later on in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3 and verse ni- uh, 19 and 20, it says this, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust, and to dust they return. Do you know what? That verse could have been written just a few months ago or a few years ago. Thousands of years ago? That's amazing, isn't it? We live in a world which tries to persuade us we're just like the animals. (laughs) We're just like the animals. We breathe the same breath. We live a life like them. And then at the end of the life, we do exactly the same as all of the animals do. We just die. And we return to the ground, you know, we eventually decompose into the ground and we become the dust again, to pulling us right the way back to that kind of picture of the beginning perspective of the world. We're, we're formed out of the same stuff as the world. We just end up back there. We're just like the animals. But here's the thing. Which life is it that we're living? The one that we are living or the one that we want to live? Because this points to the conundrum of our age. On the one hand, we are told that we are just like the animals. But on the other hand, whether it's the lives that we portray on social media, whether it's the life that we portray one-to-one, or whether it's the life that we angst about, we don't behave like the other animals. It's what makes us different. We angst about life. We ask big questions. We don't just wander around in the fields, happy that we live for the time that we live, and then go back into the ground. We don't. We think about this life that we live. The very fact that we wake up at three o'clock in the morning in the dark and ask big philosophical questions whether it's through Kierkegaard or whether it's through Jarvis Cocker or whoever it might be, it points to the fact that we are different in our thinking. 
We look at our lives and we say, who am I? What is this all about? I find it astounding. This verse was written two, three thousand years ago, and yet it speaks so powerfully to us today. I just want to jump up and say, thank you God for continuing to speak to us. And I also want to say, Luther, it might not have worked for your age, but this is, this is gold dust <laughs> for us today. It speaks powerfully. There was a man, you'll know him, most of you I'm sure, through books that he wrote for children. His name was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, genius writer, great mind. Um, he was a professor at Oxford, genius of a man. He wrote uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. You'll probably know him from that. He was brought up in a family which was kind of Christian in its thinking. Then as he started to grow up in his mind, he became a staunch atheist. And uh, he went to university and um, he ended up with a friend, a really good friend. And uh, he said that what amazed him was that this friend who he met in an English lecture was by far the most intelligent of all of the guys in the room at the time. But he was a full-blown supernaturalist, was the way Lewis described him. He was a Christian. He was amazed that this man, who was so intelligent on the one hand, could actually believe in the supernatural. Because Lewis was living in an age where he was absolutely locked in to the idea of logic and reason. And the only things that we could really trust are the things that we can see, touch, smell, taste, argue about, prove. That's, that was his world. Do you know what knocked him off course? Was when his friend accused him of chronological snobbery. That's a great description. Chronological snobbery. The idea that the time that I live in is just so much more intelligent than any age past. I'm a snob because I think that the age that and the way that we think now is just the pinnacle. And his, his friend persuaded him that is chronological snobbery. You're, you believe that you are far superior to those in the past. And he was confronted with that, and it knocked him off course. And he also started to realize that the things that he was yearning for, the things that he really wanted, those moments of joy that he was hoping for, were little indications that maybe the ancients had far more wisdom than he ever did. Maybe we can go on exactly the same journey as we spend some time looking at these thoughts from thousands of years ago which speak so powerfully to us today. It actually speaks even in our text that we've just read. Look at what it says in verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. 
There is nothing new under the sun. It's great, isn't it? There's so many little phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes which have just ended up in our, in our English language. Phrases that we use. There's nothing new under the sun. Because you see, when we are angsting about life, when we're asking questions about life, we're laid there with Solomon. We're laid there with the writer of this two, three thousand years ago. We're asking exactly the same questions. There is nothing new under the sun because we are the same people in essence. We are the same people who have the dilemma, am I an animal that just lives its days out and returns to the dust, or is there something more? That's where the book of Ecclesiastes takes us. That's why I think it speaks so powerfully to us today. I'm going to now just spend a few minutes looking at three keys to understanding the book, to see how God is speaking to us today, to resolve the dilemma that Luther had. The first is, if we look at verse 3 in our reading, we read this, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Under the sun is one of the most important, well, it is one of the key phrases in the whole of the book. You know, if you've got an electronic book or if you don't mind marking, highlighting your Bible, just go through the book of Ecclesiastes and mark each time under the sun occurs 38 times. There you go, you don't need to go and do it now. It, it occurs 38 times in the book. It's one of them, it is the significant phrase under the sun. What do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? You going out to work tomorrow? Uh, did you go out to work last Monday? It's a bit too close to Christmas for this to really work. But if you go back the Monday before and the Monday before and the Monday before, did you, did you just, are you, on that, are you on that kind of continuous treadmill of work and work and work? Is your labor just, what are you doing? That's the question that this writer is asking. He's saying, what are our labors about? Because at the end of it, what happens? I end up in the dust. But there's a key phrase which he introduces, which is this. What are our labors and toil under the sun? He's saying there's two ways of looking at life. There's a way of looking at life that is firstly under the sun. It's a way of saying everything that I see, everything that I do, Everything that I observe, all of the decisions that I, they, that I make, they are made as if there is no God. That's what under the sun means. It means that I live my life without any reference, without any thought, without any perspective of any existence of God outside of this world. That's kind of saying, I suppose he's saying, I'm just living it in an earthly way. That's a kind of way of describing it. I'm just living on the earth. And he's saying there's one way of living life, and it's like that. It creates a kind of, you know, Groundhog Day. 
Every day I get up and I do the same thing and I go through the same thing and I'm under the sun and it just happens and it repeats. It's as though I live my life with no idea that God exists. That's the first key. He speaks to us and says, that's a way of thinking. But there is another way of thinking. We can live in that way under the sun, but there is another way of thinking which says that we live our lives in the conscious knowledge of the existence of God. That's another way of saying that that what exists isn't limited by what we can see, the sun. That's the idea that there is more. There's more beyond. There's more that is outside of our sight. There is the living reality of a God in heaven. That's the other way of living. Now, that idea comes back in the New Testament when Paul is speaking to a bunch of people, probably just like you and me, where he's speaking about the idea of God, the idea of Jesus, to a bunch of people who historically had had no connection with the God of the Bible. In Acts chapter 17 uh, and verse uh, 28, he, sees, he says this, For in Him, God, we live and move and have our being. And that's what their poets have said. <laughs> that's from a... I, I really struggle with the pronunciation of this name, but it's Epimenides. I think I've got that right. He was a, he was a philosopher of the age, and he said... Our existence, our meaning, our worth, our value, who we are, is found in the existence of God. That's what makes sense of life. Living not under the sun. Not thinking that this is everything. And Paul picks up on that and he says, well, you've kind of got there by saying that there's got to be something more, but I'm now going to tell you all about that God. I'm going to tell you who that God is. And you can live your life in the knowledge of His existence. Now there is the difference, the separation of the two ways to live our lives. Either under the sun, as if God doesn't exist, or in the knowledge of God, as though He does exist. And that's That's a key to the rest of this book. As we go through the next Sunday afternoons, keep that in mind. Under the sun, the the writer flips backwards and forwards and he creates different ideas as if God doesn't exist and then as if God does exist. How do you live your life? How do I live my life? Here's the thing. The Bible is saying to us, I want you to really think about that. I want you to consider, do you live your life in the knowledge that God does exist or in the idea that He doesn't exist? And what the teacher says in the opening verses is, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. If there isn't a God, if there isn't anything more, then really we exist and then we die. Uh, This writer could genuinely be sitting across the table with, from Richard Dawkins. He genuinely could be. He would hold exactly this conversation to say, what you're saying to me is, if there is no God, if we are only an accidental 
result of various activities which we happen to be existing on this planet for a certain period of time, that's all we are, then everything is meaningless. If we live under the sun like that. But there is another way to live. The second, that's one key. So keep that in mind because it asks the question, how do you live? The second key is this. The the teacher speaks with irony. He he creates, what is irony? it's, it's, It's expressing our meaning with a language, excuse me, which points to the opposite so that the other side becomes clear. So, so an ironic comment is something along the lines of saying, you know when you give somebody a present and they are completely underwhelmed, it's as though you actually haven't given them a, the present, uh, and you say to them, oh, you, you need to calm down with your enthusiasm. That's an, that's an ironic comment. It's kind of saying, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at the fact that you're not very enthusiastic by pretending that you are enthusiastic. That's a little, it's a kind of thing that we do all the time, isn't it? That's what this guy does again and again. I've applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom, verse 13 and 14 of our reading, I've applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on me. God has laid on mankind. I've seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. He creates this big picture, this heavy thing, and he says it's it's just an ironic comment. What's it meant to do? It's meant for us to stop and to pause and to think, wow, what is life all about? Irony. One of the great tools that has been used in the past 150 years of philosophical thinking, actually. Ironic statements to get you to think. Ironic statements in our songs. Ironic statements in our poetry. Ironic statements in our films in the movies that we watch, things that are forcing us to say, what's life really all about? The third key is this. If this is just some sort of philosophical exercise, what does God have to actually say about our lives? Do we care about living today? Does God care? I think God cares deeply because He points to this. But but this book, which has been preserved by God by the power of the Holy Spirit, is contained in a massive story which takes us to a God who is not beyond the sun. It takes us to a God who is under the sun. Isn't that amazing? We've just celebrated it at Christmas. We've celebrated the idea that the God who's described in Ecclesiastes 
is the God who joins us under the sun. It's the God who lives our life. It's the God who shares in our experience. It's the God who provides for us a model of how we might aspire to live. It's a God who makes living meaningful. It's a God who says, I am not interested in somehow, in a spiritual way, just whisking you off from this planet. God didn't have to come to do that. He could whisk us off and we'd all be okay in some sort of floaty spiritual dimension. No, Jesus came to live this life. He came to exist under the sun, just like you and me to feel the tensions, to experience that sense of, I am returning to the dust, but at the same time, to triumph above that final great enemy and to show that we live. I find that really exciting. That the life that we live today, the the people that we are, the things that we do, who we are, how we live, can be shaped not just by clever thinking, but by a life that is wisely lived in Jesus. So what we're going to, t- we're going to do over these next weeks is we're going to try to tie some tight lines of anchorage between the wisdom of this book and the wisdom of the life of Jesus. Because if we don't do that, we're just ending up in some philosophical world of bright ideas, and we're not tying ourselves to hope in God through Jesus. Because it's not about smart thinking ultimately. It's about questioning our lives so that we might look to the one life. Let's take a journey. Let's aim to live wise, shall we? But not in some constructed wisdom. But in a a life that is laid out for us. Through a God who speaks to us. Because He knows what we need even before we realize ourselves.